you can't win the culture war. How political infighting, a tumultuous economy, and the wacky U.S. culture wars look to an American living abroad in Colombia. One of the curious side effects of being a long-term American expat is that you develop an expanded perspective on everything happening back in the good old U.S. of A. Living outside the mix of the hyper-publicized American socio-political environment gives you an opportunity to reflect on events back home from points of view that you may never have considered, bombarded as we are by everyone's opinion on everything through media of all kinds. Things have gotten so bad in the U.S. in terms of societal polarization and the politicization of every conceivable topic that most of my fellow Americans seem to have become walking bundles of political landmines, any of which you could step on anywhere, anytime, for any reason. Something as innocent as picking up a GMO tomato in the supermarket in front of the wrong person could earn you a sarcastic comment, an angry tirade, even a physical confrontation. Whenever I'm back stateside, I notice that I've become self-policing of my own language and behavior in a way that I never was before, due to a multitude of bizarre, sometimes threatening encounters with outspoken weirdos in stores, gas stations, restaurants, and on the street. I'm afraid of Americans. The last time I was in the U.S. with my wife, who's from Colombia, we both noticed how assertive and in-your-face Americans can be with their opinions. In one organic supermarket, I was lamenting aloud the quantity of fat green American dollars we were burning through. My wife was happily plucking overpriced goodies from every aisle, and I said something like, are you going to buy one of everything? When a large black woman in a bedazzled pink tracksuit turned to us and said, honey, don't pay any attention to him. You deserve whatever you want. My wife and I looked at each other, astonished not by what the woman said, but the fact that she said anything at all. In Colombia and throughout Latin America, the general norm is that people don't get up in each other's business in public. You could slap your child in the face in a supermarket, and most people would just shrug and keep on shopping. Some of them might even improve. In Colombia, everyone knows that sometimes a child just needs a good hard smack on the back of the head. Now imagine if a mother was hitting her child in public in the U.S., Half of the people nearby would be calling Child Protective Services, and the other half would be yelling at her to stop, maybe even intervening themselves. It's ironic that, in a country so hell-bent on the idea of personal freedom, autonomy, and independence, we're so quick to jump in and tell other people that they ought to be living their lives how we think they should. In another store, my wife and I were trying to decide between different brands of yogurt, and some random guy who didn't even work there stopped to explain to us how the organic yogurt held all kinds of benefits for your gut microbiome, while the national brand was little more than thickened sugar water with fake fruit flavoring. He even went so far as to pull the different tubs of yogurt out of the refrigerator we were looking at and point to different features listed on the labels. I asked him if he worked for one of the yogurt manufacturers, and he just laughed, shaking his head. These sorts of concerned citizens are everywhere in the U.S., and they make it their business to see that everyone around them is making the right choices. I will admit that organic supermarket shoppers tend to be a bit more informed and opinionated than the average person. People who obsess over nutrient density and vitamin supplements tend to be the same ones who feverishly scroll through their social media feeds, liking everything they see that supports veganism or paleo diets or keto or whatever health fad is trending that week and leaving angry, you-don't-know-what-you're-talking-about comments on posts or articles from people with the opposite point of view. But there are also the ones who are quick to jump on political bandwagons or start tweeting in response to the latest gubernatorial outrage as soon as it hits the headlines. They're the ones who like to confront people in public on shaky cell phone videos and call them out on what they deem to be that person's foolish, ignorant, even downright dangerous-to-society political positions. 
who effectively filibuster public speakers by shouting them down with activist slogans when they try to speak, or who lobby organizations like conferences and universities to cancel speaker appearances in the first place. A 2021 study by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, found that 66% of college students report some level of acceptance for speaker shoutdowns, and 23% considered acceptable for people to use violence to stop certain speech, up several percentage points from previous years. In the past, I would never have been surprised to encounter what I call the mad activist in their natural environment. That is, the front lines of a street protest, speaking up at local government meetings, handing out flyers, circulating petitions, or denouncing their perceived enemies loudly and at length in public. But this same kind of assertive moral outrage now seems to have infected all facets of society and all colors of the political spectrum. Now, it seems, everyone has become an activist. Somehow, we've all been convinced by media, government, our employers, friends, and family that our stances on political issues are the defining aspects of our identities. Even voicing any kind of opinion or perspective that diverges from the mainstream narratives can be hazardous to your relationships. I don't say this to denigrate the importance of political speech. Free and open conversation about the issues of the day are critical to a well-functioning democratic society. But when holding one opinion or another places you, by default, on differing sides of some ephemeral social conflict between liberal or conservative, red or blue, progressive or regressive, then civil discourse as we know it has broken down. When, if you're not with us, then you're against us, becomes the prevailing doctrine throughout an entire society, then the only result can be conflict. You have, in effect, made it impossible for anyone to hold mixed positions between the two political factions and not be seen as standing in opposition to both. In the First World War, the two sides in the conflict dug trenches on either side of the battlefield, from which they lobbed artillery shells and machine gun fire at one another across the middle ground, which, due to its total devastation and immediate lethality, became known as no man's land. The polarization in the United States has created a political no man's land, into which any independent-minded thinkers or third parties who venture find themselves getting their heads shot off by both sides. Libertarians, Green Partiers, even just political independents huddle together on an ever-expanding island of mud, surrounded by metaphorical impact craters and shattered trees, with the vast majority of the population having thrown in their lot with the two major parties, both of which effectively serve the same powerful, moneyed special interests and resemble one another far more than they differ. Rise of the Thought Police When I was back home in California on another recent visit to the U.S., a neighbor came over to help my father and I cut dangerous low-hanging limbs from one of the big redwood trees in front of my parents' house. I was chatting with our neighbor, an older, progressively-minded ex-Coast Guard officer, while we held the ropes, keeping my father secured to the tree where he was using a chainsaw to lop off the big, heavy branches from 20 feet in the air. The conversation turned to politics, and I said something about how Trump, problematic as he was, had some good points about being tough on China, given their now obvious bellicose attitude towards the rest of the world and their own people. The moment I showed even the slightest praise for Donald J. Trump, this neighbor turned to me with a shocked expression. Miles, how can you say anything good about that man? He's destroying our democracy. Our neighbor shook his head, disappointed. It's dangerous to even think things like that. Dangerous even to think? What was this, Soviet Russia? Did we now have to monitor even our own thinking? I began to wonder where this might lead. Ten years in the future, would my neighbor be reporting me to the local Democratic National Committee office for thought crimes, all the while believing that it was in my own best interests? Would I be required to turn myself in for incorrect thinking and shipped off to a re-education camp, 
just like the poor Uyghurs in Western China, whose only crime was having a culture that didn't conform to the societal characteristics defined by the Han Chinese in Beijing. Even then, several years ago now, it was clear that the political sensitivities of average people were being tuned to a high, tense vibration. I'm no fan of the 45th president of the United States. But then again, I'm no fan of the 46th, or the 44th, 43rd, 42nd, and back on down the line. They are the inheritors of a blood-soaked institution, which, while providing many benefits and supposed freedoms to the American people, has promoted wholesale slaughter, destruction, rape, pillage, economic extortion, and general mayhem towards the rest of the world ever since the country's founding. From the Native Americans, Mexico and Canada, to Cuba and the Philippines around the turn of the 20th century, to Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and now Ukraine, the business of the United States is and always has been war. We would do well to remember that fact. The American frontier was opened after the genocide against the Native Americans, whipped along its nightmarish trail of tears by the federal government. The American empire was founded on the backs of Latin America, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, Chile, etc., the Pacific Islands, the Philippines, Guam, Samoa, Hawaii, and so on, and anyone else around the world that the U.S. could bully economically or militarily into signing on to its hegemonic agenda. As of June 2022, the United States has sent more than $54 billion in military and economic aid to Ukraine the majority of which will go to weapons manufacturers like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and others for advanced weapon systems to fight a proxy war against Russia, the resurrected Cold War boogeyman which the U.S. military-industrial complex needs to justify its continued aggressive national defense posture, or at least the money which flows to its enablers. This comes at a time when the global economy is sliding headfirst into a deep and prolonged recession, following two years spent printing money and orchestrating a massive wealth transfer from the American middle class to its billionaire oligarchs. This is not conspiracy theory or propaganda. This is current political and economic fact. In the largest and most recent $40 billion aid package to Ukraine, almost every single Democrat in the House of Representatives voted to support it, including Bernie Sanders and the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and a few other uber-progressive people of color, with only 15 Democrats and, surprisingly, 54 Republicans voting against it. That vote was the death knell of the anti-war left in the United States. Anyone who thinks that the Democratic or Republican parties are really the ones in charge in Washington is kidding themselves. The war party is all that remains. After the disastrous U.S. exit from Afghanistan, in which tens of billions of dollars of sophisticated military hardware and infrastructure was simply abandoned overnight to our supposed enemies, the Islamist fundamentalist Taliban, and tens of thousands of American allies and supporters were left to their fate at the hands of these fanatical extremists, who took pleasure in, for example, executing innocent men, women, and children in front of evacuating U.S. forces, we needed a new enemy. A few short months later, Vladimir Putin gave the warmongers in our midst a perfect excuse by invading Ukraine. How do you keep the money flowing to the war machine when the country has just walked away from a 20-year conflict? Why, you go looking for another fight to pick. Unhappy was just providing weapons, planes, fuel, and logistical support to Saudi Arabia for its ongoing genocide in Yemen. They turned their greedy, bloodshot eyes towards Ukraine where a nominally democratic government was now fighting for its survival against an autocratic, malevolent invader in the form of Russia. This is the moral bankruptcy of the United States federal government. 
Democrats and Republicans alike, concerned with their own endless re-election cycle, care little for the increasingly challenged position of ordinary people at home in the face of hard-hitting inflation, job losses, and a technological and economic landscape changing so fast that almost nobody can even make sense of what's happening anymore. At the same time, Americans are being sold an Orwellian state of permanent war, which encourages overseas adventurism against real and imagined national security threats, all while keeping the domestic population at each other's throats with a new manufactured moral outrage every few weeks or so, as soon as the last one starts to lose steam. Uncivil Discourse In the United States, as civil discourse retreats behind political battle lines, we are kept distracted by hot-button issues, such as abortion, gun rights, or Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, as corporate lobbyists and their political hatchetmen loot the public treasury to line their pockets while funding overseas destruction and human suffering, as our cities, schools, infrastructure, and public spaces decay around us. The real insidious nature of these political squabbles we are so prone to as Americans is that it's so easy to get us riled up because these issues are important and because we care so deeply about them. Gun rights matter because there is an epidemic of gun violence in the United States, not just from the occasional mass shootings, which are horrifying on their own, but from perennial urban shootouts between rival gangs, drug traffickers, and other criminals. Abortion matters because it is a critical issue for women's rights and their physical health, not to mention the entire trajectory of their lives. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, well, they don't matter so much, but they provide a useful stepping stone to keep the debate raging over mental health and hashtag MeToo issues of men and women abusing their power over one another for personal gain. Watching all this from the outside, from where I live in Bogota, Colombia, a country with plenty of its own domestic and international issues to sort out, it's much harder to get drawn into the debate on one side or another. It's easier to see the partisan conflict for what it is just so much media noise, and to pay more attention to how real people's lives are being affected. When I talk to friends back home now, many of them seem utterly captured by ideological debates. It's almost impossible to start a conversation that doesn't touch off some politicized issue or another, and even the most innocent topics can go off the rails and veer into controversy. Just to give one example, asking someone if they want to meet up for a drink gets tilted swiftly into, well, I can't go too far because of gas prices, because, you know, Ukraine, Biden, Trump, inflation, the pandemic, etc. Now, their blame for the many challenges we face in all of our lives is more often relegated to some external factor, some nameless higher power or government official, rather than the more ordinary factors which tend to govern the ups and downs of everyday existence. Living in Colombia in particular provides a unique perspective on polarized conflict. Just this week, the so-called Truth Commission delivered its final report on the last six decades of Colombia's internal armed conflict, which was a stipulation of the 2016 peace accords between the government and the country's largest armed rebel group, the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, or the FARC. There's too much in the report to cover in this article. But to sum up, the findings are based on interviews with more than 14,000 survivors of the conflict, including civilians, soldiers, guerrillas, paramilitaries, narco-traffickers, politicians, journalists, and observers. The commission's report details how more than 450,000 people were killed, upwards of 120,000 disappeared, and millions more maimed, injured, or displaced as a direct result of the violence from 1958 until 2018. Colombia's internal conflict was fueled by polarization. Its roots go back much farther than 1958, although that was when the discord began as we recognize it today. 
It goes back to the founding of the country in the early 19th century, and political strife between conservative Criollo landholders left over from the Spanish regime and more liberal representatives of diverse local populations. Simón Bolívar, Colombia's George Washington, fought a guerrilla war alongside his army and generals to liberate a huge chunk of South America from Spanish rule, and after becoming something of a dictator himself, suffered guerrilla revolts against his own government, disparate rebellions which continued unabated into the 20th century. Like the United States, it would seem that militant conflict is embedded within Colombia's national character, and a common response to disagreements with the government is to take up arms and disappear into the countryside. Of course, when rebel groups come into conflict with the government, civilian populations are usually the ones who suffer the most. The vast majority of the victims of Colombia's armed conflict were not involved with one side or the other. They simply got caught in the middle. The tactics of guerrilla warfare are well understood by both guerrillas and their military opponents, and involve the guerrillas hiding among civilian populations, receiving support from or extorting innocent people to continue their operations. Governments know this, and a common strategy when fighting guerrillas is to punish those civilians in order to punish the guerrilla by extension, or to deny them access to that support, at least in theory. The last six decades of Colombia's internal conflict are rife with stories like the following. The guerrillas, or their right-wing counterparts, the paramilitaries, appear out of the jungle, demanding food, money, supplies, and fresh recruits, often children or young men and women, who were forced into service. Then they vanish, and a few days later, the army shows up looking for the rebels. The army doesn't know who among the local population is with the rebels or against them, so they start detaining people, interrogating them, maybe torturing them. Sometimes those people are never seen or heard from again, earning them the ominous distinction of disappeared. One of the darker chapters of the internal conflict is the scandal of falsos positivos, or false positives. In order to satisfy their quota of rebels captured or killed, certain commanders in the army took to simply ordering suspected guerrillas and ordinary civilians killed, and adding those bodies to the tally. But it wasn't just the army who was desperate to kill their enemies. Guerrillas and paramilitaries were just as ruthless, and would often indiscriminately torture, kill, or disappear those they believed were working against them. You can see why the situation is so difficult to reckon with. The sorts of trauma and resentment left behind after decades of this kind of conflict have become generational, passed down from families to their children. Like in South Africa, the people of Colombia have to reckon with the consequences of horrifying violence perpetrated by themselves against themselves since at least the middle of the 20th century. The Truth Commission in Colombia took many lessons from South Africa's own truth and reconciliation process, which sought not to punish as its primary goal, but to reveal the truth and allow victims to confront their victimizers, to attempt to forgive and to heal, and to levy appropriate punishment where necessary for the worst offenders and leaders who'd been responsible for some of the most heinous violence. This is one of the possible futures I see for the United States, in the current environment of extreme polarization and seemingly irreconcilable differences. Considering the vast amount of weaponry already in the hands of American citizens, almost 400 million guns in a country of about 330 million people, Letting this kind of conflict and partisanship continue unabated, and to keep throwing not just gasoline, but veritable napalm on the flames, like our political leadership and media personalities seem intent on doing, seems like a recipe for catastrophe. Saying that a new civil war could break out in the United States might seem far-fetched, but civil wars have begun in other countries over less. Consider how the last U.S. civil war ended, in which a victorious North lorded it over the defeated South, Yankee carpetbaggers come to mind, and no process of truth and reconciliation was ever even considered. 
leaving the same old resentments smoldering under the surface from the 1860s until today. Given all that, armed conflict between liberal and conservative factions in the United States isn't too difficult to contemplate. If we want to avoid the most catastrophic outcomes, we must learn to talk to each other again. We must recognize that our neighbors with different political, economic, social, or religious beliefs are not our enemies, but probably have many of the same problems we do. Paying their bills, raising their children, saving for a comfortable retirement, making sure there's enough food on the table, having fun on the weekends. These are the issues which really matter to most people, not whether some politician from the other ideological camp in Washington, D.C. has it in for us. Because the truth is, they do have it in for us. All of us. Left, right, center, none of it matters when held up to the ghoulish foxfire light of the actions of the American federal government, both in foreign interventionist military action and domestic interventionist economic action. Everyone suffers equally from inflation, just like everyone suffers equally from bombing raids. As incendiary and disagreeable as he can be, you have to respect media personalities like Tucker Carlson for hosting opposition voices on his controversial Fox News show. Many of us might not agree with him, might violently disagree in fact, but it seems that even using a media platform to have a reasoned, thoughtful discussion with people from opposing points of view is a cancelable offense these days. The voices which make the most sense to me, as an American living abroad, are the voices from the middle, or from the periphery. Journalists like Chris Hedges, Matt Taibbi, and Glenn Greenwald, feminist writers like Megan Murphy, or Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty from Breaking Points, the fantastic independent news show on YouTube, libertarian commentators and politicians like comedian Dave Smith or Kentucky Senator Rand Paul start to make more sense when they are the only ones left who explicitly reject left versus right politics and start calling some of the wannabe big brothers on their bullshit. Heck, I even find myself agreeing with the MAGA crowd since they seem to be the only ones left speaking out against the endless foreign wars as well as bailouts for big banks and corporations that gamble with people's futures. God knows I disagree with those lunatics on just about everything else, but when hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are being killed, impoverished, or having their lives permanently disrupted or forced to flee their homes forever due to the recklessness of American foreign policy, not to mention suffering at home due to domestic economic policies, among others, that's about the only thing left which truly matters. It almost doesn't matter if they're taking those positions out of political expediency, since the very real death and destruction is taking place in front of our eyes every day mostly through online media sources, since legacy media organizations don't seem very interested in showing us how our tax dollars are really being spent. We need to get our own house in order before letting our government run amok, causing mayhem all over the world in the name of spreading some falsified idea of democracy and freedom at the point of a hellfire missile. Support Ukraine should mean more than just sending more weapons to prolong the conflict. It should mean supporting peaceful negotiation and whatever compromise is necessary to end the bloodshed. When both Henry Kissinger and Noam Chomsky, two diametrically opposed political voices, agree on that point, we may want to sit up and take notice. Supporting abortion rights should mean more than just demonizing conservatives because they think differently than liberals or vice versa. It should recognize that millions of Americans really do believe that abortion is murder, and millions more believe it is part of a woman's legitimate sovereignty over her own body, and give both points of view a voice in that conversation. Realistic gun control should do everything it can to keep deadly weapons out of the hands of disturbed, angry, lonely, hurting young men, while also recognizing the public's legitimate need to own tools for hunting and self-defense in a place that is still very much a violent frontier country. Take it from someone who grew up in the deep, dark forests of methamphetamine-infested rural Northern California. When the nearest sheriff's deputy is an hour away at least, you want to have a gun or two in the house, 
just in case. The world is not so safe yet that we can all leave our doors unlocked and the keys in the car, despite what many Americans seem to believe. These debates are wide-ranging, and I don't want to come down on either side of them, since I like to think I can see the arguments from a variety of perspectives. The point is, none of these issues are black and white, and we need to cultivate the ability for nuanced, reasoned conversation around them. The more we fall back on knee-jerk reactions to the latest moral outrage, the more we deepen the partisan deadlock and diminish the possibility of any real change. Who benefits from the culture war? While we argue over intractable issues at home, people will keep suffering and dying in Ukraine, Yemen, and everywhere else around the world that the U.S. sees fit to extend its sphere of influence. In Colombia, my adopted country, the U.S. has repeatedly insisted that the government continue spraying glyphosate over vast swaths of rural countryside, where the growing of coca leaf for processing into cocaine is common, as a condition of continued international aid, economic, and political support. Glyphosate is a chemical desiccant used for crop control, which the World Health Organization has cited as probably carcinogenic to humans, and has detrimental effects on the entire ecosystem of areas over which it is distributed via aircraft, not just coca crops. This anti-drug strategy was brought to you by the same kind of thinking which allowed Agent Orange to be infamously sprayed over millions of acres of Vietnam during the conflict there, in a misguided attempt to root out Viet Cong guerrillas, causing tremendous ecological damage and untold numbers of deaths, injuries, chronic illness, and permanent disabilities to the Vietnamese people, as well as U.S. military personnel. But even glyphosate spraying is just another toxic consequence of the interminable war on drugs, which, like the war on terror and the culture war, is designed to be unwinnable. The same policy setters who seem determined on keeping the United States mired in endless military conflict abroad, as well as domestic turmoil at home, seem to have no interest in ending the violence stemming from the illegal drug trade. The most reasonable solution seems to be total or near-total legalization, but for a variety of reasons, you will never hear that discussed realistically at the policy level. Political and corporate interests who line their pockets with proceeds generated by the endless drug war are curiously aligned with the same cartel leaders and narco-traffickers who benefit from the high prices commanded by drugs like cocaine remaining illegal. But the only narrative you will ever hear from those in power is that drugs are bad, drugs are harmful, people can't be trusted to make the right choices about using them, so we need to criminalize and punish those who distribute them. I'm not saying anything especially new or unique here, just trying to frame the bizarre, upside-down culture wars in a different perspective to help us parse out these issues on our own, not how some talking head on TV or the internet is telling us to think. Far from some naive plea that, can't we all just get along, I'm simply suggesting that we take what we hear in the news or online with a grain of salt. Not everything is what it appears at first glance. If something you hear provokes an emotional reaction in you, take a page from the mindfulness book and ask yourself, why does this upset me? Is someone trying to rile me up? Whose interest does it serve if me and lots of other people react strongly to one issue or another? So if you find yourself being told by media, politicians, or even people you know to view other people as being somehow against you, or part of some other group whose interests are contrary to your own, just ask yourself, like the famous lawyer and orator Cicero did in ancient Rome, Qui bono? Who benefits? Even Elon Musk, with whom many young, progressive, forward-thinking people are encouraged to identify, does not want the same things you do. The interests of billionaires, corporate plutocrats, and establishment politicians, dinosaurs like Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden, or Hillary Clinton, are not your own. In the immortal words of Russell Brand, Stay free!